Hello, everybody. My name is Bruce Montgomery, and this is my colleague, Tracy Priest. Hello, everybody. That's where you say hello, Tracy. We're with The Road to Retail. On our podcast, Tracy and I hope to offer tips, insights, ideas, and examples for how small emerging or challenger brands can grow their business, where to start, how to get out of the farmer's market, how to prove it online, how to secure distribution at a national retailer, drive your business with the consumer, and when necessary, find an investor. The bottom line is we would love to help you be successful by highlighting the many important aspects of this journey to establishing and growing your brand. Tracy and I have made a lot of uh, mistakes over the years, and we'd love to help you avoid those and accelerate your path to success. Tracy? Awesome. Thanks, Bruce. So uh, Bruce and I have been in consumer packaged goods commercial operations for 30 years. And what we mean by commercial operations is sales, marketing, trade marketing, acquisitions and divestitures, product development, distributor and broker management, just to name a few. And on our podcast, as Bruce said, our passion is to really help small emerging brands navigate the journey to retail. Also on our episodes, we invite friends and colleagues from the industry to come and share their experiences with our audience as well. And today we've got a fantastic guest. I'd like to introduce to you Rob Maxwell. And today on our podcast, we're going to talk about how to hire a broker and the ins and outs of, of that process. So Rob, welcome to Road to Retail. And Rob, just uh, give us a brief background. You've just got an awesome uh, variety of uh, experiences. So share with our audience today just a little bit about, about you. Thanks, Tracy. Appreciate it. And I uh, appreciate both of you for, for having me today. Um, really, really my pleasure to be here. Um, so my, my food background started um, back in 1992 at uh, a, a place called Bread and Circus. Um, and Bread and Circus was a, was a family-owned chain based out of Boston, uh, owned by the Harnett family. Um, and right around the time that I started, uh, it was acquired by Whole Foods in, in kind of the hitting the, the main stride of Whole Foods growth through acquisition phase. So um, kind of a serendipitous moment. Um, but I spent the next 24 years with Whole Foods Market um, doing everything from uh, running departments uh, all the way up through executive coordinator of operations for the South region. Um, so we're in about 2016, uh, the uh, whispers of, of maybe an acquisition started happening. And um, I had kind of a, a moment where I decided I wanted to do something a little bit smaller and get back to my roots uh, in the natural foods industry and went to uh, a brand uh, called Grandy Oats, which is uh, an organic producer based in Maine, uh, run a solar powered bakery out in Western Maine, and they do organic trail mixes, roasted nuts and seeds um and granolas so spent three years uh, with the owners there working on uh, scaling the business up uh, had a great time uh, it's an amazing amazing group of people um, and when that work was finished the the owners were still very active so uh, it moved on from grandiotes to rodeo cpg which was really just getting ramped up there i think there were seven of us when i started there and i think rodeo today is probably about 40. so uh, spent three years at rodeo uh, working on the services model over there had a, an incredible, incredible three years with that crew, great people, um, and currently uh, serving as the Senior Vice President of Growth Services at Dirty Hands. So uh, got a very rounded kind of uh, knowledge base, worked on the brand side, work, have worked in the services side, and have worked on the retailer side. So 
I, I like to think that gives me interesting perspective on on lots of things in our industry. It definitely well, definitely does, Rob. Yeah, I, I, without question. Mm -hmm. So, Rob, before we jump off, as Tracy said, today's topic is kind of how to hire and work with a broker successfully. So before we get into those details, just to make sure we level set, can you tell the folks out there, you know, what a broker does and the role they play for a brand? Yeah, you know, I think I think in the best best case scenario, um, you know, a broker is really, uh, you know, a, 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 in a, for an early stage brand anyway, a guide and a partner. Um, it's a it's a it's a partner that ideally is is helping you carve a path to to a healthy sales model. Um, it's doing some uh, mapping for you, giving you some financial expectations of what you should expect, so you can do some cash planning. Uh, ideally, they're they're able to help you establish some distribution out of the gate. We should probably put an asterisk on that and come back to that. That's gotten a little complicated these days. Um, but but in a perfect scenario, I think really a broker is is a is a sales partner that is is helping the brand to um, carve a path into distribution and into retail that's sustainable um, and that has clear expectations of what success looks like. I, and I think that that's probably like a 30,000 foot, I think, what a, what a really good broker partner can do for you at the, at the beginning. Nice. I, I like the reference to a partner and a guide and mm -hmm. cash yeah. planning. We'll come back to that as well mm -hmm. as distribution because a lot of times um, people's speed of running can outrun their cash. And that is not good. Tracy? Yeah. So Rob, tell us a little bit about um, how does a small emerging brand know that they're ready for a broker? So as a, a lot of our audience, they may be selling at the local farmer's market, or they may be in a few, you know, regional uh, small retailers, you know, in, in their region. So tell us a little bit about how do you, what's the mental checklist that a brand should go through to determine whether they're really ready to hire a broker sales force? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, you know, really one of the key components comes back to, um, I guess there's a few pieces. So first one being proof of concept. Are you, are you having success at the, in the local market? I mean, are you getting, are you getting reorders? Uh, is the product moving at a reasonable clip? Um, is your feedback solid? Is your, is your pricing uh, competitive uh, as far as you know, at the, at the stage that you're at? Um, and then the other piece I think is expansion is expensive. So, it, you know, some of it's a cash game. Are you, are you funded to a point where you have either self or, or through somebody else, do you have the funding to support some growth? Because growth, uh, is, is cash out first before it's cash in. So, you know, I think that's an important piece for, for all brands to really consider is that cash component of it might be three months before you see, it might be longer in certain cases before you actually see any of that money come back, but that inventory is going out and that inventory is just your cash um, until it's, until it's, you know, transitioned into income. Um, I think those are, those are a couple of the keys. Um, general, general appetite for growth and, and what that looks like, you know, are you looking to do something in a very regional play? Are you, are you thinking bigger? If you're thinking bigger, you might have a different strategy that you want to enact for something like that. But again, it's, it really does, really does come back to um, preparedness, I think. I agree. And I think the other thing I would think I would think is important is, um, and we talk a lot about this with our retail partners, is supply chain. Is your supply chain solid? Have you ever shipped to a retailer before? So a lot of times, small emerging brands, they're selling it at the local farmer's market or a couple regional accounts. 
or a regional distributor, which is easy to do, but then they want to get into a much larger retailer, which as you said, is very expensive to do, but you've also got to have the supply chain ready to take that on. Would you agree with such that? An, such an important component. You're so right. I mean, I think, especially in this, this modern time that we're in right now, um, where manufacturing is challenged for sure. I think everybody's feeling that, uh, line time is down. Um, I think the co-manufacturers are, are largely leveraging into their big partners because that's their, their safety net and they have to service those first. So as a, as a, as a smaller brand, much harder um, now to get a co-manufacturer on board at a, at a minimum order, order quantity or MOQ that is reasonable. Um, seeing a lot of brands being challenged with, with a very high MOQ, um, which really is a, is a pretty significant risk. If you can't feasibly move that product, you're just going to, you're going to end up lossing it. So I think there's, there's uh, a lot to be said there, Tracy. I totally agree with that point. I think you're, you couldn't, you couldn't be more right. When you deal with, when you deal with a, a broker, Rob, and you're talking to, let's say your, your first retailer and, and let just to keep the hypothetical, let's say it's a regional brand out in New England somewhere. And um, you, you get a, a food account that wants to put you in and they're interested. And the question comes down, do you do a 50 store test or do you go chain wide? How do you, as the entrepreneur, you know, work with the broker? I mean, I've worked with a lot of brokers and I would say almost all of them are, are have your best interest in heart. But every now and then, you know, they're capitalists and they're like, hey, 200 is bigger than 50. And then you run into cash crunch, maybe supply chain. But how, how do you coach uh, an emerging brand to be like, hey, let's be a little patient, make sure we've got our act together. I mean, how do you have that conversation? Yeah, I, I, think, it, I think it really does come back to, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of iterative steps of proof of concept to me. So, you know, like you kind of want to test at different scales as, as you're able. Um, at the same time, it's hard to say no to an opportunity. I, I totally appreciate that being, having, you know, been on the brand side, I, I get it. It's, it's very exciting to get a big hit. Um, but it, it really, you have to consider, and this is part of the, what I would talk to a brand about is you really have to consider what can you, what can you support, not just financially, but mentally, like what, what is your team prepared to support? Like if you're moving into larger geographies, uh, it becomes a lot more challenging. Um, you know, you're, you're looking at, you're not going to have eyes on every store uh, anymore if you go into a massive geography. So it's a little bit of a leap of faith. So without, without a stronger proof of concept, I, I, my personal opinion would be, you know, take it in steps, take it in strides, you know, get some, get some <clears throat> learnings through that process while you have the opportunity to see, uh, different different actions at different scales, I guess, for lack of a better way to say it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Hey, Tracy, one other question here, Rob, while we're on this, when you, and this will dovetail into our next more juicy question, when you're dealing with um, people that claim to be brokers, can you talk a little bit about the person, and let's just say it's me, who has a couple of good contacts, but might not have the back office to support the real activities you know the contacts obviously key because if you can't get a meeting you can't get distribution but there's so much more that has to be done that back office piece is huge and you know I, i've told this story to, to a few different folks but you know there, there have been times where i've had a small regional broker in place um who in total honesty maybe i wasn't 
blown away by their sales performance. They were okay. Um, but the back office was so strong that the value prop actually stood out. Um, mm -hmm. I, it's that big a deal. So I think the point you're making is, is huge. And I think it really, it's a matter of, do you have that competency in-house? And, and the answer at the early stage is, is almost always no. Um, it's a complicated space. Distributor paperwork is not simple. Um, you know, understanding how promos flow is not simple. Uh, you know, all the forms and submissions are different at every retailer. So having that institutional knowledge to kind of support that really goes an awful long way in, in insulating you um, into some really nice success stories. The flip side is a person that has, let's say somebody's got this great, you know, connection at retailer X um, and they can help crack that door open. There's, I think there's, I think there can be value there, but I think you, as long as your eyes are open to what, what's on the table, what should you expect? Mm -hmm. What's, what's this person delivering? Um, because if they're just delivering a, an approval at a meeting, um, then the work starts, right? It's like right. closing, closing that deal is, is it is significant uh, and it's and it's certainly an impactful moment, but um, making that deal successful goes beyond the close of that deal, right? There's a lot more to it to make that a good thing for for both of you and your retail partner. Because I think it's another thing early stage brands kind of forget sometimes is I think it's it's not uncommon to to talk to folks that <clears throat> kind of have a, a misunderstanding of the relationship with the retailer that the retailer is responsible for selling your stuff. They're not really. They're responsible for putting your stuff on the shelf. Right? right. The selling of the stuff is really a brand driven event. Um, it's, it's really not a retailer driven event. So I think getting to a place of understanding of that is so important for brands, too, of what are you doing past getting it to the retailer's shelf? Because there's more to the story, because none of us are winning until that thing comes off the shelf. Right. That's the win at right. the end of the day. So kind of having that full sight line um, and that full focus as to what does success actually look like? I just think that's so important, uh, and I, I still still do see sometimes uh, folks that don't don't understand that flow quite yet. Right. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that because Tracy and I did a series of interviews, Rob, with about twelve uh, buyers from large retailers, and and one of the great quotes was this: "This buyer said, I've literally seen brands like start high fiving and hugging when when I tell them we're going to take them." And I have to caution them and say, hey, the work starts now. Right. Tracy? So yeah, and I, I want to piggyback on two things that Rob said. First of all, Rob, one of our bumper stickers at Road to Retail is it's not about sell-in, it's about sell-through. So that's a, you just said that exactly. And I think also when you get into bigger retailers, Rob, that back office becomes even so much more important, like a Target, a CVS, a Walmart. They have their own systems. They have their own language. They have multiple portals. And if you're not with a broker that knows how to do all that back office stuff, you are going to, you know, fail mightily. I had an experience where uh, one brand took, it took almost a year to get set up at Target. Oh, I don't think that's uncommon. Yeah, it's, it's a it's a complex process, especially at the, like, the large chains that you're referencing. You're right. I mean, they're, they're very... Uh, complex systems that are not easily learned. They're not inherently user-friendly. It's no. it, again, like I keep, I keep saying this, but there's an institutional knowledge to certain things um, that large chain function is, is really one of them. And, and I, I wouldn't uh, honestly even dare trying to tackle one of those large chains without a, a broker partner in place. I really, I, I personally wouldn't. Perfect. That's exactly what I thought as well. So next question is, so 
tell our audience uh, the difference between a broker and a distributor. We've gotten this a couple times from our audience. So just tell us a little bit. I think it's pretty obvious, but we wanted to make sure that we put that put that out there because sometimes um, people get confused. Yeah, it, 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 I have a I have an interesting uh, take on this. I think I, you know when I was with Whole Foods, I spent three or two or three years in London um, working on the UK expansion project, and I was it was interesting um, because the the industry in the UK, the the distributor functionally is the broker. I mean, they really are doing a lot of active selling, and and I, and that was interesting to me because it's it's not quite that here while. There's exceptions and there's some caveats to that statement. So one of the caveats would be distributors have sales teams for sure, right? right. Um, but distributors are also carrying a, a, a blinding level of brands. I mean, it's a lot of products. So it, it's not realistic to assume that a U.S.-based distributor is really going to be highly successful for you, especially as an early stage brand in that sales function. Are there things that they can do? Will they occasionally produce wins? Sure, it can happen. Absolutely. But is that something that you want to build your plan on? I, I would say definitely not. Um, right. So unless you're unless you're really in like a, a, a DSD or direct store delivery environment, which which again is a little bit of a different animal. But for I think for a typical center store grocery items here, the distributor, to answer the question succinctly and, and as simply as I can, the distributor is your partner that gets the product from where you manufacture it or you bring it to them, whichever, um, and then gets the product from the distributor's warehouse to the retailers. That's that's really the function of your distribution partner, and that's that's. If I'm being frank, I think that's the expectation that I would put on my distributor partner is that that's kind of it. That's what I'm looking for there. There are some other components, but probably less significant. Um, a broker is responsible for creating uh, the opportunities for you to sell your product into retailers, right? So looking for appointments, presenting for you. If you don't want to do it for yourself, I would always recommend being a part of that. If you're a brand, I think, you know, be, go, push to go to all of the, the presentation meetings that you possibly can. I think that's a good practice. It's a good learning experience and you're going to sell your product better than anybody else will ever sell your product. Exactly. Absolutely. Um, yep, for sure. But I think those are the, I think those are the fundamental, you know, basic differences between the two. And, and, and those are how I would place those expectations on those two partners. So I want to clarify something because I know uh, some of the brands that I've had experience with, and I want—I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm going to say this statement: a distributor is not responsible for sell-through of your brand or building your brand. Like you said, I think they are a logistics partner, and I think that sometimes the distributor portrays themselves as that's my role is to promote and to sell and to help you with sell through. You want to I, I would agree. I would agree. Yeah, I would totally agree with that statement, you know, and like I said there there's there's always exceptions to rules, but I think that's a healthy rule to live by. Um, there there're probably a couple of exceptions out there, but I I I wouldn't I wouldn't put stock in distributors as your sales partner. That's not something right. that I would probably put bets on being a good a good strategy. Exactly. So, so Rob, there's all kinds of levels of complexity as a brand or a company get bigger. But when you're a small emerging challenger brand, can you kind of speak in broad terms, like what does a compensation plan look like? You know, the length of a contract, is it fixed fee and then converts to a commission structure? Can you just 
give the uh, the group here a little bit of an idea of what to expect when they have that first kind of terms phone call or meeting? Sure. There, there's, I, I mean, and I think you're going to see some, um, there's be some variance between different partnerships, right? But I think by and large, um, things that are not uncommon. Uh, if you do not have any established sales, if you're going and expecting to go a commission only deal, um, that you, you might be disappointed. Um, for, for the broker, there's, there's nothing in it for them to do that. So while your brand, I'm sure is amazing, and absolutely, uh, I'm sure has all of the potential in the world, brokers still have to pay their salespeople. I mean, they still have people out there selling, doing the work, and those people have to get a paycheck. So they can't do that on, on, a, on a percentage, which you know, at, the, at the starting point is nothing. So a, a, a modest retainer, I think, is um, pretty, pretty standard. Uh, and, and a conversion piece, uh, as you mentioned, may look like you know, anywhere from 1,000 to 3,000 or anywhere in there as a retainer, uh, and then converting to 5% or something like that as you, as you crest that 1,000 or 3,000. So it's you know not uncommon common to see X or five percent, whichever is greater. Um, I think that's a pretty that's a pretty standard uh, it's a pretty standard thing that I, I think you'd see out there. There's also different models. I mean, you've got you know outsourced VP of sales level folks that you know are going to be a much higher retainer, um, much playing a you know playing a more strategic role. I don't know if that's the place to start. Probably not where I would start. Um, it's kind of an expensive place to, to, to launch from, but, but it can certainly work. Um, so, you know, sometimes those folks maybe have different connections that are able to open distribution packs faster. But I think those are, those are traditionally kind of the two, the two functions that I would see with the, the only other exception being um, a retailer specific broker, uh, which, which usually I think you'd still see some version of, of one of those things right. where it's a, a modest retainer and, and, or a percent, um, as compensation. Yeah, that was kind of my follow-up question was there's a, I don't want to say the word cottage because a lot of them are very sophisticated, but a bit of a cottage industry around the largest retailers. It's like, hey, all I do is Kroger or Whole Foods or Dollar General or CVS. Um, do you have any any thoughts on the true specialist? I mean, my view, and I've hired a bunch of them, is when I'm struggling or I have to win somewhere, I will go to that target Whole Foods, that person where it's like, hey man, this is all we do. I'm like, okay, I, I don't need an entire East Coast broker. I have to figure out why I'm suffering at X. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I've used um, uh, quite a few of them. Um, and in, in, you know, uh, fortunately in, in a bunch of cases to great effect. So I, I, I won't speak poorly of that, of those groups. I mean, I'm sure there's, there's good and bad everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. So there, there is that, but but I've certainly seen Target specifically, without mentioning names. There's there's a broker group that I've used successfully numerous times, um, and I, I think they just do a fantastic job. They know they know that account like the back of their hand. They have the relationships, um, and it's and it's always been a good experience. And I've seen that with Walmart. Certainly seen that with Kroger. You know, largely larger banners usually. That's that's not an unusual way to focus. It's not, you don't have to, I mean, you've seen success there without those as well. Right. But in the, you know, I think Bruce, in the example you're setting where it's like, I, I have to win here. Like this one, I have to get this. Then I think that can be a good approach to get a hyper-specialist uh, mm -hmm. on that account and, and see what you can do because to some degree, and this is, this is one of the harder parts of our industry, right. Is 
if a broker is not performing uh, or even a hyper-specialist broker is not performing and by not performing, I mean, it, it's just not getting in. The buyers just aren't taking it in. Right. It's, it's sometimes it may be that the broker um, isn't, isn't performing correctly, but a lot of times it's also that the, the, the product isn't resonating. Right. right. Uh, and that's, that's some hard feedback to take. So I think it's important for your broker partners, for you to build a relationship with your broker partners where honesty um, and the ability to, to give and take feedback in both directions uh, is, is an integral piece of that relationship because you want to know what the objections are. I mean, sure. you really want to know what the objections are. So if you're, if you can't hear that and you're not collecting that information or soliciting that information from your brokers or that, that information is hard to get. Like if you're hearing that, like they didn't take it. Okay. Why is it packaging? Is it price? Is it competition? I mean, what flavor, like what's going on? Give me the feedback because as a, as an entrepreneur, you've, you've got to, you've got to work with that feedback because once you start hearing some cons consistent threads, then that's, you know, that's something you've got to really do something about. Um, right. You know, well, one negative reaction is whatever, but, but when you start hearing consistency, that's, that's something. Different. Well, and like you were saying, you know, that's why you've got to be at these meetings. You can't just like sit back at your office or your house and then wait for the phone call to hear how it goes. You, cause something will get lost in translation, translation and not maliciously. You want to hear that it's the packaging or you're a dollar too high. So two other nuts and bolts questions, and then we'll move on. So, for it, for a person that's never hired a broker before, Rob, what kind of a suggestion do you make in terms of um, accepting an initial duration of length? Because a lot of entrepreneurs will say, "Hey, I want to save some money on legal. Why don't you, Bruce, the broker, send me your contract? You know, should it be annual renewable? Should the first one be six months? And yeah, there's always outs and stuff, but even those get complicated if you've never done it before." Yeah, it's, it's a good point. Um, I'm, I'm a fan, you know, I think, I think there's a, there's a happy medium here for between what works for the brand and what works for, for the broker. Um, I think uh, the reality for a lot of brands, and this is, this is another, you know, tough one, I think for early stage brands to swallow is, is getting it going takes a minute. It's not fast. You know, right. like you hire a broker, it does not mean you're launching in all these accounts tomorrow. It, it, that's not how it works. I mean, you've, you've got to get past the just getting some somebody bought in so you can set up distribution. Like, that in itself is, is a, is a, is a serious mountain climb. So in the, you know, in so much as like, what does a contract look like? I, I, I wouldn't balk at, at four to six months. I wouldn't probably sign on for a year out of the gate personally, not saying you couldn't and, and shouldn't, but like for me, I'd, I'd want to keep it a little tighter. I'd want to make sure that we're on the right trajectory because the onboarding is, is a lot of work um, for everybody. There's a lot there. So I, I think, I think four to six months is a reasonable time frame to kind of get a feeling for, are we heading in a good direction? Are we, are we presenting the products? What's the feedback? How are we doing getting distribution up? Like what, what are we, you know, you should have a pretty good idea of what's going on in that time frame. So that window works for me. Um, a lot of brokers will ask for a year and I, I, I don't blame them for that. Honestly, I think that's, that's not an unreasonable ask um, to your point. I think if you're going to sign a longer contract, you want to make sure that there's, there are some out clauses that are, clear and that you understand what it means and that there are metrics in place that you can actually go to those and say, this relationship doesn't seem to be working as we'd hoped. And, you know, in, in the contract, we have this clause. So we'd like to, we'd like to push that forward and say, we're going to, we're going to exit in 30, 60, 90 days, whatever that clause is. Um, I do think you want to be mindful of what you're signing for sure. Right. You know, read it. It's not and fun Rob, to read, I wanted, but you should I, just, read it. I wanted to highlight one thing you said is 
it's not an immediate process. So I get this question all, all the time from small emerging brands. So how long is it going to take to get on the shelf? Well, that depends on, maybe you can answer that question. I, to my answer is it depends on the retailer, but what's your thought when, when a small emerging brand comes to you and says, okay, I want to hire you, but you know, when, when am I, when am I going to get on the shelves at Whole Foods as an example? Yeah, and, and, and I would I would probably answer similarly in that, you know, that's not necessarily a decision that we make. Um, and, in, and in fact, is not a decision that we make because as the broker, you know, assuming, you know, let's say we're the broker, um, we'd like for that to happen tomorrow. That would be really good for us. That'd be good for all of us. That's like, no, nobody wants, you know, nobody wants to lose. Right. Everybody wants to win here. So, right. so there's mutual alignment of goal, but I, I think you're right. I think, you know, understanding what the category review timing is, you know, if, you, if you're fixated on whole foods, let's say, right, if that's like, I have to get into whole foods, that's why I'm hiring this person, but your category review isn't for another nine months. You know, exactly. like that might not be the right time to hire, to hire somebody, you might right. want to pause and learn about when your review is. Now, there's alternatives, right? And you might be able to do an off cycle through a local program or something like that. So it really just depends on goals, you know, and, and your willingness to be flexible and how are we going to approach this then? But, but yes, I, I, I think um, really retailer driven to some degree distributor driven these days. I mean, the distributors okay. are challenged right now. It's, you know, the supply chains are, are tough and the big houses are definitely seeing some challenges uh, in, in, in keeping up with everything. So, you know, that, that can slow things down a little bit, I think right now. For sure, so, for sure. So Rob, if an emerging brand has kind of done the mental checklist and they think that their supply chain's in order and they've got some money in the bank and they sort of know that, hey, you know, we're from New England, we're going to start in New England and not Phoenix, but they don't know anybody. How, how do they meet a broker or find out like who's the daddy of, uh, you know, getting into XYZ re retailer? How, how, do you, how do you manage that uh, minefield? Yeah, I mean, and it really depends, right? I think there's a few answers to that. I mean, there's obviously, you know, the, the nice thing about specifically a natural channel about our industry is it's it's a pretty supportive industry, right? I mean, it's a pretty open industry. People are generally happy to give advice. People want to share their experiences. Um, so so really using that network, um, you know, getting involved in, in any of the active groups or, you know, getting a subscription to like, you know, any of the publications and kind of tracking, you'll, you'll see activity from a lot of different folks there. So that, that can be a very, you know, cheap and easy way to, to kind of get, get involved in the, in the community, but in other spaces, you know, and I, I'll use, so I'm in Maine and I'll use, you know, a specific reference here, you know, here they have a program, you know, called uh, MCE and, and it really is built to help founders kind of connect and learn. And it's an educational piece so that people don't kind of go blind. And I, I think there's there's a lot more of that happening in a lot of states. So really looking there, too. Uh, I think this one is actually um, it's a philanthropic philanthropic uh, funded group. But um, I think there's state funded groups. I know Colorado has a state funded group. So there's I think there's a lot of different opportunities to, to find. I think it's just a map. You just have to look around. Yeah. You know? Network. Yeah. Network. All right. day, every day. Yep. Yep, and it never stops. So, Crazy. Uh, yeah. So, Rob, uh, tell us the a success story of where you've seen a small emerging brand hire a broker, and it's been a great experience for both parties and been a been a success, and they've they've both won and shared in shared in those winnings. Yeah, I mean, I'll use a, a, a personal story. When I was at, at Grandy Oats, um, you know, we we had you know we had really focused to that time. We kind of focused on you know the 
I would say UNFI East, right? For, for lack of a better way to say it. Um, and, and primarily in the Northeast, because it's a Maine-based brand. So it has a good local following. It was, you know, very successful in the, in the region. Um, but, you know, we had aspirations past that. So um, Aaron, the owner and I, you know, we, we kind of put our heads together and we, we decided we really thought the, the products would really resonate in California. Um, you know, we, we kind of had this like bi-coastal plan of, you know, this is kind of East Coast and the West Coast. We feel like is, is where this product's really going to resonate. Um, and, you know, we used our network and, and, you know, rolled the dice a little bit. We actually talked to uh, a buyer that we were friendly with at Whole Foods at the time. This goes back a little ways. Um, and we said, who's, who's out in your area that is, you know, reputable and that you've enjoyed working with. And he gave us a list of folks that he, he thought he'd had good interactions with. Um, and we interviewed them all. Uh, we went with one and it was, it was really a, a kind of a boutique California based brokerage. They, they're still in business. Um, and they, they crushed it. I mean, they absolutely crushed it for us. We blew up California. In three years, we, we doubled the sales of the company. I mean, it was, it was incredible. So uh, that was beyond successful. Now, we, we were selling as well. So I'm not going to say it was, you know, it was just the broker partner, but that, that was a true partnership. And it was a really good relationship. It was very positive. And they really understood our product. Um, they took the time to, to train their entire team on the product. We had a lot of opportunities to connect with their team. And it was, a, it was really a, a, a transformative moment for the business. I mean, it was an incredible thing. We were able to, you know, beef up our production facility. And, um, it was, it was pretty incredible. So that's, you know, that's just, that's just a personal story. I've certainly seen it, you know, numerous times with, with others, but it's, it's really when you can build that true partnership, right? It's like, I think a lot of times what, what happens is, you know, and, and you two have seen this, I'm sure, but, you know, brands will, will kind of take this like needing to be extremely aggressive and dominant towards their brokers. And I, it's, it's seldom a winning combination. I mean, yeah. it's not, like if you are if you are rough to your brokers, now don't get me wrong. I'm not saying don't hold them accountable. You should, right? But holding them accountable is a math game. That's not a that's not a verbal game, right? That's numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that you know I think when when brands kind of take that tone, you know, you have to think of the human psychology involved and look at okay, that tone is trickling to all of the people in the field that are that are tasked with selling your product. They don't like you. That's not good. Right. I mean, you're, you can't win, you know, so it's like, you have to ride this fine line of, of really pushing and, you know, there's a, there's a level of being a squeaky wheel that they think is really important in your broker partnership. You don't want to be forgotten. You don't want to be not communicative. You want to be very involved. However, you don't want them to dislike you because they're not, they're, they're not going to do their, like, you're not going to do your best work for somebody that's not nice to you. It's just not, it's not human psychology. It just doesn't work like that. Right. So I think that's, I think that's, you know, meandering a little bit off the question, but I do think that's an important piece, you know, when, when, when considering these relationships, you know, actually, Rob, I think you might've just uh, also answered my follow-up because I was going to say, let's look at the other side of that coin. What are actions or examples that smaller brands may have made that proved ineffective or, or damaging when working with a broker? And you just talked about basic kind of human courtesy, right? Hopefully stuff you, you learned at your breakfast table growing up, but I don't, I don't know if you want to go a little bit deeper there because relationships matter, right? And if, if every time my name lights up on your phone, you're like, oh my God, you know, it's just not going <laughs> to bode well. It's, it's so true. I mean, it's just, it's so true. I think, um, 
Yeah, I, I think if, you, if you've ended up as a brand, if you're at the point where you're that angry at your broker, you need a new broker or you need a not broker. Like you, you're, you have the wrong partnership. Like this is not the right, this isn't working, right? Um, and, you know, and I think at this, at this stage, I think brokers, you know, are firing brands in certain circumstances for just like, this is not a tenable working relationship. This isn't, you know, right. we want to rep your ways. Yeah. 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 It's like, you know, a little bit of decency and a little bit of respect in both directions. Um, and I think it, and I think it very, very much does have to go in both directions. I'm not saying brokers, um, brokers are busy people, right? It's a busy business. It's a hustle. It's a lot of work. Um, so, you know, putting yourself in somebody's shoes, it's like, you do have to, like I said, you do have to stay involved because as soon as you go quiet, they're never, they're never in a space where they don't have things that have to happen. I mean, they're always, there's always a million things that right. they have to do. So I, I, like I said, I think it's important to stay in tune with the, with the team. And I think it's important to be participatory and it's part important to um, provide the information that they need. And this is, this is, uh, this is, you know, kind of the working relationship piece, a little bit more on the technical side. You know, we talked about when, when how do you know you're ready to go work with a broker? Well, there's a couple of, of um, I think almost ops or, or finance pieces that really matter here. And, and one of them is, do you have a spec sheet that's recognizable in the general consensus of the industry? Because um, you need one if you don't. Right. That's a must-have. Do you have a price list? Because you can't you can't reasonably expect your brokers to to sell things without a price list. It's not going to go well. You're going to end up in a weird cash place. It's going to get real uncomfortable, and or they're not going to be able to execute on anything. Right? Do you have packaging images? Do you have packaging flats do you i mean there's there's just some basic components that i think you have to be ready to provide and as things change if you've engaged outsourced partners you have to feed them that information in as real time as you possibly can because it's critical information so as they're setting up paperwork if, if they're filling out something wrong it you know it can take to do a price change it takes at least three months now with the big distributors so I think understanding that flow and, and, and having the competency of like what a broker needs to work for you, right? There's things that they need. It's not just like you sign a contract and all of a sudden sales happen. It's like, no, I need, you know, a sales deck. I need sell sheets. I need, you know, like I said, the spec sheet, the price list. And some of those basic components, I just think are, um, are absolutely mandatory that you have that sorted out before you try to sign on with a broker. That's great. That's great insight, Rob. Great insight. So one, one final uh, question here, Rob, from me in, in terms of what you just said. So as an entrepreneur or small brand, and you know, maybe you've been doing everything and maybe you have one right-hand person and now you're going to go the broker route and you've met someone you, at least right now, you trust and you, you have a spec sheet What's that, um, and it comes back to respect what you were saying, but what's that moment of introspection where the entrepreneur needs to say, I need to take a little bit of a step back. Yes, hold them accountable. Yes, squeak a little bit, but I'm hiring these people because they do X, Y, and Z better than me. So what's that, the introspection where that entrepreneur, where you might say, hey, Bruce, if you want to hire me and I'm your broker, these are the three things I'm going to be point man on. I want your input, but come on, man. If, if you don't trust us to do that, why are we even talking? So what, what do you think the entrepreneur needs to yield to the broker to enhance their potential for success? I think, I think if you're going to hire a broker on, you've got you've to trust their process. 
Um, and I think that's the most succinct way that I can say it. Like there's a process to this, right? And for brokers, especially there's a, there's a, there's kind of like a cadence and a dance to this, to this industry. There's, you know, they, they presumably know the category review timelines. They know the temperaments of the buyers. They know. So an example, if, if I'm, if I'm going to, to somebody as my broker and, and they, I say, Hey, I want you to call so-and-so at Wegmans. Um, I have their number, just call them and tell them, tell them to get me in. Right. And the, your partner is saying, okay, I can't do that because one that potentially damages my relationship with that buyer. And I have a lot of brands to consider here. I can't just annoy a buyer on your behalf. So, you know, I guess a short way of saying it, Bruce would be, um, the the reckless tenacity that you might be able to afford right as an entrepreneur your broker partner can't they can't they can't do reckless that that won't work because there's a there's a balance to these relationships and there's a reason that these buyers give them time because they're they're presenting things in a way that are easily digestible to them they're being respectful of their time they're um they're, they're kind of respecting kind of like a set of of rules that can be specific to each buyer um, and really working within that cadence to keep that relationship good. So sometimes that hard push um, is really where you're gonna meet that kind of defiant response. Sometimes it's a soft approach and getting in there and, and getting in at the right time, in the right way with the paperwork filled out exactly correctly, going back to the importance of the back office. Um, you know, there's a lot of components there. So I think, I think letting go of the, um, the need to control how the relationship with the retailer is handled. You have to let that go. That's, mm -hmm. that's no longer yours. That's gone. Um, and, and, and a broker, if, if, if you're pushing them and pushing them on that and they say, yes, they're just yes. And they're not going to do what you're saying because they can't, right. it doesn't, right. it won't make any sense. Well, Rob, that was a great term, you know, with the guitar on your wall, I think reckless tenacity is the name of your next <laughs> band. <laughs> I like it. I like it. I like it. All right, Tracy. Awesome. So, Rob, if uh, somebody uh, um, listening to our podcast wants to reach out to you, how do they get a hold of you? Yeah, you can hit me on email um, at robm at dhstoresupport.com um, or uh, by all means, hit me up on LinkedIn, uh, Robert S. Maxwell. Awesome. Rob, great uh, time together. Uh, very insightful, as I thought. Thanks for sharing with our audience today. And so the big finish is uh, if you want to follow us, you can uh, follow us on LinkedIn at Road to Retail or on our YouTube channel, Road to Retail. And we're excited also to announce that we're now on Spotify, also on Road to Retail. So multiple platforms to reach out to our content. And again, thanks, Rob, for joining us and uh, look forward to posting this episode in a couple of weeks. Yeah, thanks so much, Rob. This was great. Good luck out there, everybody. Yep.